Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Can everyone hear me okay? Good. <clears throat> so uh, tonight we continue with the theme of dependent origination. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's for serious Dharma practitioners, and uh, I, I really, there's no other way to put it, really. Um, it's for people who want to go to the next level of inquiry and examination of what spirituality really means. Uh, often we get caught in the trappings of the spiritual adventure and we love the different uh, highs that it gives us in chanting or uh, sometimes in meditation. Uh, but uh, the real essence of spirituality is to move into the depths of, of the formation of the world and the formation of me within that world and to see whether uh, when we actually pierce the veil of what that means, whether we come out the same way as we believe ourselves into the world to begin with. So uh, that's the adventure we're on. I hope it suits you all. You're here, so I assume that you are suited. Perhaps a false assumption, but we'll see. Uh, but one thing I would like to encourage in you uh, is uh, that you don't have to... Um, you don't have to force yourself into this topic. There's a way that you could sort of passively listen. Just let it come at you. Let it, let it circle around in your system just by opening up and being attentive. And then asking yourself from time to time uh, if what is being said is part of your own experience. Can you, uh, can you relate to it? Is there something in it that is compelling uh, and in which is a natural movement of interest within that. Uh, so I don't, I, when I say that it's for the serious student, I don't mean that it needs to be oppressive or that it needs to be uh, fearful at all. Um, so if you're here and you're wondering whether you fit that definition of sincerity, you do if you're willing to listen. You will if, if you just see what it does to you as it comes in. The Buddha was very clear that uh, there are lots of ways that the Dharma gets into us. One of the ways is speaking. And uh, often, while I'm speaking, I have insights into what I'm saying. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. <laughs> but also, one of the ways is by listening. Uh, a lot of insights uh, penetrate through the ear door and uh, so we offer you that opportunity tonight. So tonight uh, I'm going to talk about, uh, in Pali, the words, uh, the, the link that we're on is called Nama Rupa, or name and form, name or form, sometimes called mind and body. It's called mind and body when you relate to dependent origination as the creation of this sense of me, this is the step in which the mind and body comes into, into uh, fruition through the various conditions that are present. And we've talked about those conditions that sort of set up the environment for the next link in dependent origination to occur. And we've talked about ignorance, uh, just the inattentiveness that most of us give our lives uh, is a kind of a prerequisite for conditions to form. It's like you might say that snow needs certain conditions in order to develop. Well, nothing happens if it's 33 degrees. It's got to be 32. So some of these conditions are, are really uh, essential. All of the conditions are essential. But ignorance is kind of the prerequisite setup for the whole situation just not willing to look at our lives. And that's why I often talk about uh, spirituality. True spirituality is a movement from the unconscious to the conscious. Really, what we're just starting to attend to areas in which we have been inattentive prior to this. Uh, and it's often very difficult to open our, open our observation to areas that we feel are so... Um, insidious in us and so awful that we have hidden from them for such a long duration. But as we begin to understand 
sort of the outline of the Dharma and let it in, much of what we thought was so terrible is not at all. In fact, none of it is. And is very inviting once we understand it in a different way. So this question of confusion and ignorance is a very important one to understand is the basis of our meditation. The basis of what, I mean, what does observation mean? What does awareness mean? It means seeing. It means seeing and where we haven't seen. So, or at a new level of what we have seen. So that's, that's really the spiritual journey. You'd think it would be so easy. You know, just, okay, I'll look at that. But, oh, no, we've got a, so many defense mechanisms against seeing ourselves or others or the world as it is that we're, we're well defended. We're well barricaded in. So uh, dependent origination is if you're tuning your attention to the set of conditions in which we arise or the world arises within our attention, uh, you'll see what we're composed of. And most of us want to continue to believe that we're sort of pre-existing from this set of conditions that actually are the condi- are the circumstances, the environment for which we arise within, we'd like to think of ourselves as being something more permanent and established than that. And so that's why it's difficult to actually entertain some of these links because we think they take us apart in ways that don't... It's like Humpty Dumpty. If I fall off the wall, are you ever going to be able to put me back together again? Well, you come back together, but you don't come to back together as an egg. <laughs> The yoke. <laughs> and then uh, based upon that prerequisite uh, condition of ignorance, things happen. And of course they're not being noticed because we're not looking. And one of the things that happen uh, is the mental formations that start occurring. Uh, all of the attitudes, beliefs, uh, Thoughts, emotions, the feelings, all of it, all of that stuff in there. And once that stuff starts uh, coming up unobserved, it forms a consciousness. It forms a, it embraces itself into a almost a single lattice work in which we assume, you know, the consciousness of our our being, the consciousness of the world, uh, that sense of content-filled world that we see when we look out of our eyes or into our internal world. And tonight uh, we're going to look at the next link independent origination called Nama Rupa or name and form. And so before I get too deeply into that one, I want to just have us understand the relevance of this particular link because I, if you look around you, Virtually everything you see is of form. It's of form. In fact, our, we have an exclusive ability to see just form. And so uh, we relate to the world exclusively, almost exclusively. Some of us have pierced a little bit out of that. But mostly uh, uh, we relate to the world as an expression of form. Now our science is really... Uh, a set of of assumptions based around the established fact of the world being formed. In fact, scientists have their own bias against seeing anything other than the world of form. Uh, Not that it isn't available, it's just that it isn't allowed in. It doesn't fit the paradigm from which science has been established. So, what we often find is that scientists ask questions from the paradigm of form, about the nature of form, but they don't ask questions about the paradigm that they're in, about the assumptions, the basic assumptions on which their life has been built. Let me just give you an overview of some of those assumptions when they are have to do with everything being a physical or material paradigm. All reality, according to science, is material or physical. All of reality. 
And if we look out, we can certainly agree with, uh, with much of that because it does look like the world is just a clutter of things. And I am just, my mind and body is just another thing within a mixture of things. And, uh, but science goes further. It says that consciousness is a byproduct of the physical activity of the brain. That if we have, if consciousness has any meaning, it's, it's really a product of what the physicality, the, the product of the materiality of the brain. In fact, I've heard one scientist claim that if he could compute it sufficiently, so he knew all the neurological products of how, how the neurons were firing, he could, in fact, perfectly create the human mind. So uh, another assumption uh, of the paradigm we're in is that matter is uh, unconscious. Stone has no consciousness. Be careful here. Seems true, doesn't it? We're going to break that apart tonight. In fact, in about the next minute. (laughs) (laughs) And that the forms of the world hold life's significant purposes. That it's the expression of seeing forms that we get our purpose and meaning from life. You know that, so it's natural that you would have a life that's been, uh, it's been surrounded by form, and that dev- derives its meaning from form, and that we derive virtually every product we can conceive from life from form. Our happiness is derived from form, and we try to milk the form so that our products are ever more pleasant. You know, and so on and on, it gets to the point where, uh, you know, that you either grab the form in front of you uh, or you miss the opportunity, that the form is the thing. And so the formed world as we know it is really the starting point of our spiritual journey. It's because none of us are completely satisfied with a world of just form. Now, it's very interesting, you know, because Buddhism really has to do with any spirit, any spiritual, true, authentic spiritual journey has to do with um, really looking at the world of form and see whether it's as beneficial and as as a content, contentment. whether there's really as much contentment in it that we believe there to be. And that's when it starts breaking down. But for most people, especially when you're young, uh, you know, you just think that the world is going to be built upon your legacy of form. The the children you have, the job you have, all these are form-created occasions and circumstances. Now, it's very interesting because I've been reading a lot of, of physics lately. Not lately, I read it all the time. I don't understand any of it. doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Quantum mechanics. Sounds great off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> but I, I really enjoy it because it's breaking apart form. In fact, uh, there's this... Uh, uh, Professor Emeritus from the University of Oregon, whose name is Amit Goswami, physicist, quantum physicist. You might have seen him on uh, PBS stations. They often put people like that on when they have a fundraiser. Because <laughs> he's so, uh, he, he just shatters your view. But his, his quote is that there are no objects in the world. There are only possibilities. And this is formed from the fundamental belief, the fundamental knowledge. It's not even a belief. It's been tested. Quantum theory has been tested more than any other theory and has never proven false, not one time. That at the smallest level, uh, the microscopic level, there, uh, there, the form is a potential, a wave potential. And it's not until consciousness sees until that thing is observed in a particular by observed that it becomes something 
It's nothing until it's seen. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so you wonder how scientists could have missed that point. And I asked I ask scientists that. I, I, I ask mathematicians. I've asked physicists. They say, well, we don't worry about that. We, because the equations all work, we just go with the equations that work. We don't worry about what's behind the equation and the implication of what's behind the equation. But that's where I go. I don't care about the equations. Who cares about what? They're already proven to work, but what, what does that mean if everything... And they've actually shown now, and I've read a bunch of essays that say there's no reason that what is true at the microscopic level isn't also true at the more gross level. In fact, they have now shown you know, complicated uh, molecules to also be uh, possibility, wave possibilities until they are perceived. Uh, but th- their experiments can't, there's a certain uh, threshold in which the size can no longer be tested for that purpose. And so that's the reason that no one can say that a chair is a potential until it's observed because there's some way that that can't be experimentally proven given how they're doing it. So I don't really understand that except that I know and feel very comfortable with the fact that all of this is mind created. Nama Rupa. That the Buddha was very clear about that. You know that that this is that the observation that the real ruler in this is not some some matter that is potentially the same over time, but it's the consciousness itself, the expression of consciousness that touches that matter that is the determinant quality as to what that matter is going to be. Name and form. See how far you want to go into this. You see, it gets pretty. Alice in Wondery, right? So, uh, so how did we get lost in this particular perspective of form? Uh, you know, where uh, consciousness seems to be a part of the mechanism of the body, of the brain, rather than seeing it as the, the foundation on which everything else rests which is the truth of what the world, the universe looks like. Well, if you, if you think in evolutionary terms, our species has only been around two or three million years. But life has been around about four billion years on this planet. So we are a very small fraction of the, to- of the total evolution of life on this planet. My own theory, I don't have anything to base this on because it's historical, but my own sense is that uh, because we are such a new species in terms of the longevity of life itself, when we develop the capacity uh, to have a body and venture out, our consciousness, soul intention became formed around the preservation of that body because we were very... Uh, vulnerable species. We didn't have any weapons uh, with, uh, prior to our intellect that could run faster than the lion or fight more ferocious than the bear. And so we were very vulnerable species. And so our consciousness got hooked up with the body in terms of its protective element. It was confused. It got confused because it needed to survive. And so this link between survival, which is fear... Right? Fear is, you know, like something's coming at me. It's that fear, adrenaline rush of formation uh, was uh, coupled in, somehow genetically got coupled into the whole system of our evolution. And so we've never been able to separate our consciousness out from the security of the body. Uh, It's still very much linked to the security of the body. And so uh, we got lost in all of that. It was confusion. It was ignorance, basically. 
And uh, along the way, lots of mental formations began to occur as we had pleasant or unpleasant experiences within the fabric of the environment. And so that all got confused as well because nobody was interested in seeing what was happening up here. Everybody was interested in getting, putting space between themselves and the bear that was rushing at them. So there just wasn't any insight. There wasn't any awareness. There wasn't any uh, willingness or even intention to separate those two or see that one uh, wasn't the product as, as we believed it to be of the other. Now, what is the actual reality behind these mental formations? So I used this metaphor uh, once before, and I will ask your patience in being able to use it again because I think it's such a good one. What is actually occurring using uh, the basis of, of, of quantum physics and just the understanding of Buddhism, perhaps more appropriately, what's actually occurring uh, with consciousness and with uh, awareness, which is the missing component of all of this. The reason that we see forms is because consciousness has been so attentive to forms. The bear, the lion, the snake, for its safety. So it's formed consciousness, right? But if you, uh, as a, again, this is the metaphor, if you show a movie on a white screen, uh, the images are the compelling reason we go to the movie. We go because sequentially the images tie into each other to make a, a narrative, a story that we can have empathetic response to and say whether it was good or not. So the images are what we are the consciousness of ourselves. That is, they're, they're equivalent to consciousness, the images. So the images, the mental formations that arise in the brain are what we're interested in. It's the narrative. It's the story of our life. It's, it contains everything, right? But think again as to what is the image is composed of. First of all, the image isn't real. It's composed of light. The light goes through and carries the image to the screen. But the image itself is really composed of light. It's not composed of what we think the image is, right? And that same way, formless awareness or aware presence, I like aware presence, is the, is the foundation on which all of the forms and expressions we see is composed of formless awareness. Formless awareness is the isness of every form that we see. Now, you, in your practice, you will be able to determine just that. If you go to a form, and I'll, in a moment I'm going to start talking about the body as the form of exploration, where we can see much of this and, and realize it, not just have some kind of philosophy about it. That's just new age if it's just philosophical. But you can actually see that the things we call form are really awareness, formless awareness. And that's why some uh, well-practiced uh, yogis can, say, can make the claim to say, you know, my God, I'm everything. Because the, when form loses its defined reference, when we're not held to looking just at the particular definition of what's in front of us, and the defined boundary of what's in front of us, it loses its, its individuation. And the exclamation, and you, you know, throughout history, you know, people have made what sounds as if it's almost uh, heretical, you know, oh my, I'm God, or whatever it might, they might proclaim, from that vantage point of seeing the boundarylessness of form. 
Now, I say that they've missed a step because you don't form again in another boundary claiming that you're anything. Not in Buddhism. And Buddha was very clear that I don't, if you see boundarylessness, you don't then say, I am God. That's just claiming a new reference for yourself at the end of the boundarylessness. You see that? You just shut up. <laughs> you just still. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Is in the stillness, not in the reproclamation of yourself in some other larger, omniscient way. So you, I, I hope you find this interesting, you see, because we're really seeing how we've limited ourselves to believing a very, very limited parochial sense of environment. And it's because the mental formations that lie within consciousness get our attention. We've learned how to program the mental formations to reflect the sense of me, the sense of the body. So when mental formations come up, we don't see them as just occurrences. We see them as references to something, to me or to the world. I like the world, I like you, I don't like you, I don't like me. It's all this toing and froing. It's the same it's the same genetic condition that our species had when it's ventured out of the forest into the plains and it says, I don't like that lion and I do like you because you have you know, it's like the same processes going forward now still. But the but consciousness itself evolves. There's an evolutionary tail to consciousness. It evolves out of itself. And I really believe that life, if there is a purpose to life, if there's a purpose, if there's a direction to it, it's the evolution of consciousness. So the, the sense of, of consciousness uh, being contained within ourselves and constantly referenced within ourselves is because everything that happens within our consciousness is self-proclaimed. My mood, my thought, my this, my that. All the arrows, the default position of all the arrows is self-centeredness. Now we have reached a point in the evolution of our species when self-centeredness no longer works. Seven billion seem to have reached, there's a threshold or something of the number or of the urgency of, of conditions, resources, etc., in which we are now seeing you know, Oklahoma City disasters proportional, far greater proportional to, uh, you know, than the climate would naturally have lended itself to even a few years ago. So you get a sense of, of a threat now to the species in which I believe could happen is that it would institute a new step towards a, an evolution of consciousness. It would propel, one might say, a new, a new level of consciousness. So, and you might want to also say that we who are there prior to the catastrophic need to turn are the forerunners, the forebears of that evolution. Good, great. Let's not claim any pat on the backs here. Let's just do the work that's needed and get ourselves so that we understand this well. Now, uh, let me just walk you through how the origins of naming. Now, naming is a very interesting point because once we name something, remember Nama Rupa is name and form. You see, it's very... Uh, the, a few years ago, I gave a couple of years discourses on the Satipatthana Sutta. And one of those uh, 
discourses, I talked about the Buddha saying that we only know the body through knowledge and remembrance. That's quantum mechanics. He's saying if we forget to call ourselves body and mind, then that will become it'll become a potentiality, but it won't become a solid thing. So, and we, we can begin to sense that in ourselves when we release the need to call ourselves by our name or the body by its name, an arm, a leg, a finger, or anything. You'll find your practice sometimes contains uh, not the distinction of form that you know your mirror image to be, but a kind of nebulous, almost cloud-like feeling that feels more like a potentiality for it to be something than the concrete object that we have made it into by calling it something. And when you're sitting there and you're not saying, oh, my arm hurts, and you're just feeling the actual sensation of arm and perhaps pain, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not paint by the colors here. It doesn't hold together as arm or body. And you don't hold together as the person you think you are as you write your biography. It becomes, you don't get shattered out into some nowhere land. It's not like you, you know, that you've lost, you know, it's not that at all. It's just that your awareness, the awareness, the light that holds the image that we keep compelling forward. When the image isn't compelling forward, the light takes over. The sense of light, of formless awareness, or presence, aware presence, doesn't hold that configuration. Now that really is quantum mechanics at the spiritual level. And it's backed by the science. I'm sure I'll get letters from that. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> now what happens, you see, when this doesn't form itself into the precision that we believe it to be? First of all, you lo- the paradigm shifts. The paradigm materialistic paradigm where all objects are lifeless that's not true all objects are alive within this new paradigm of form everything is alive because everything is is based within fundamental to formless awareness conscious presence What naming does, when we start naming something, it's very interesting, you see, it has a carryover effect. It's like when you name something, your mind sustains that name until you see the thing again. Oh, and you, now you're you except four days older. Right? So it has this, this compelling nature that it, it sustains objects, the naming. And the more we authenticate and validate the name, that is, we believe in the name, the more it carries itself forward as an object perpetuated in time. So it's very, I think it's fun to go into the meditation without, okay, so just let me suspend my knowledge and remembrance. Now the body I'm talking about here represents all phenomena. I'm just using the body as the major reference of an object that we can all understand. And the body then is created in the moment of a thought about the body. And with that, this very, with the thought that there is a body, come the laws of death, old age, and illness. 
You see? The Buddhist teaching is to end the laws of old age, death, and illness. See how close it is? But because we keep investing in the form and the belief in the form, we perpetuate the laws that govern that form. When we have a body in thought, that body will age. Old age, sickness, and death. Which is interesting, you see. The reason that it ages, or from my perspective, this is going out a little far, is because it can't hold itself, sustain itself as a body, as a permanent thing, because it's constantly being forced to be what it is through a thought, through a conscious observation, through a thought, through an investment in a thought. And so as soon as you're not thinking, it starts disintegrating, and then you start propping it up with your thought again. And so, no, of course it's going to get old. <laughs> of course it's going to get diminished. Of course it's going to die, end. Because it just, it, it's like trying to keep a snowman or snow no person <laughs> build up build up when it's 35 degrees you know it's like <coughs> and as soon as we have a name you see that's where division starts so as soon as I have a name for something, the world is divided between me, who has the name, and the object, which is external to me. So with the naming comes the world of, of separation. And what happens when the name is released? And the consciousness is no longer forming those components of course as I mentioned all the laws begin to dissipate but also the sense of separation does as well but in a materialistic paradigm in a paradigm of in which substance is form is the thing we never allow that to happen and we keep trying to verify the fact of the truth of this particular paradigm when it is so clear and obvious to anyone who has ever looked inside that there's no truth to bear there at all. And the mind just keeps bringing forth what it interprets reality to look like. We say... I think this is a fearful situation. And fear arises. I'm in a fearful situation. I sense that this is, that there's dread here. Dread arises. You see? So the mind just keeps bringing forth what we believe to be the truth of the situation. And we've all had experiences where it's so obvious that that wasn't even a snake, it was a rope on the floor that we... But it didn't stop the fear from arising, did it? Because once we name it to be something, it arises within the mind as, as a confirmation of that statement, of the confirmation of that thought. You see how the whole thing is just... <laughs> so I want to make sure that we, I come to this particular point because I sometimes I think that uh, these talks will take you out there but give you no way uh, for you to explore it. So I want to I wanna, even though there are as much more I could say about these and in the next discussion period I'll bring some areas that I didn't talk about tonight forward. I want to talk about the training. What the training has to do with what this predicament we find ourselves in. A poet, uh, Galway Canal, I believe, said, we reteach a thing its loveliness. You see, 
we bring a different paradigm through a different organ. This is all brain manufactured, mind generated, right? All of this duplicity and separation and all of the thingness of the world based upon memory and naming and all of that, that's a mental phenomena. And we have, as I mentioned, invested so much energy and authenticity into the brain because it's been our survival mechanism to get two million years out with our species intact that we haven't even thought about another organ. But we reteach a thing, its loveliness drops us down away from the mechanical way that we're thinking into something, into an organ that waits as the light itself. It's the organ of light, all right? It's the organ of, of, of aware presence. And this organ relearns the loveliness that is the world. Now, in truth, we can enter the wonder of what I've been speaking about, the mystery of, of moving beyond definitions, simply by, through appreciation and gratitude. If you just look at something and stop letting the mind dictate its, its conclusion about it and its judgment of it, if it, you're not going to eliminate that, but it, doesn't, it can be a veil that you can see through rather than it obscuring any further seeing. So if you just keep looking at something, you'll eventually see the loveliness of it. You'll, you'll appreciate it. There's a gratitude you have for being alive that expresses itself in other forms of aliveness. And as you allow yourself to melt, as you allow yourself to be tender, you'll find that the definitions of the world become more vague. Have you noticed that about the heart? That the more authenticated the heart becomes, the less defined the world is. And so we, that's why we rebel against any, you know, that's, uh, that's wimpy stuff or whatever we might say about it. But the way out of it is through that door. You can't love, you can't really care when the default position is self-centeredness of the mind, of the brain. You can't, the caring has to come when the mind is quiet enough so that you can see what the world is like. When you're not focused on the images on the screen, when you can see the light instead of what the light is doing and forming images, when you look at the light itself, that's love. And you can then look at that sense of body formation, of all the ways that we have scarred our body through the malice of our mind, you can start re-teaching your body its loveliness by holding it not in, con- not in contrast to the judgments you have it, but seeing where the judgments are. They're just thought. They're just a conditioned belief we have about the body. They aren't the truth of the body. They aren't the truth of you. They're just how we've kept ourselves imprisoned within the image of ourselves. And we can reteach a thing its loveliness. And we can welcome in the whole of the body while we notice the sustaining quality of the breath. Appreciating deeply the fact that we breathe, not taking it for granted, because everything that's taken for granted is a confused relationship. That is ignorance. There is nothing here that's for granted. From there, from the sense of loveliness, from a sense of composure, we can now explore what the body really is and not keep instilling it with the ideas we have about it. We can start going to any part of the body and just resting there quietly to see what it really is. Like right now, just go to the palm of your left hand. And drop the word hand. 
Doesn't even look like a hand, does it? Seeing the body as the body, not as the narrative says the body to be. And I would also welcome you to just sitting down sometime from a very non-interpretive attention with a very a sense of non-interpretive attention and just realize that two things are going on in any particular moment. That objects are appearing within consciousness. Those are the sense objects. The sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch. That's one expression or manifestation of the moment. And it's from that sense data that the naming begins and the form arises and on and on that goes. But start noticing that in addition to the, the sense appearances, there is formless of presence, aware presence that surrounds each of those sense senses that's something that is missed you see if you talk about dark matter talk about 95% of the universe being missed if you miss this you miss 95% of you yes there's the sounds smells and tastes but there is the f- aware presence that holds all of that, that even knows that. The capacity to know that, not in name, but as an experience arising within it, then that's formless presence. And then you'll see that awareness is fundamental to the universe. Breaking apart this whole paradigm of materialism in one fell swoop. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? See, what I fear is that so many people now are teaching meditation just around form because there's so much scar tissue around our form having gone through two million years of formation that this message is being lost and for some reason more and more inexperienced teachers are taking the platform and if you miss this you miss the spirit You miss it. You miss the sacred. There's no spirituality within form. Exclusively within form. There just isn't. We can make ourselves better. We can make ourselves more appreciative of it. We can hold it lightly. We can do all those things. That's humanism. That's humanistic psychology. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want a spiritual quest, you have to move beyond a formation to find it. Okay, so let me stop and see if there are any questions that people would like to ask with this. Yes, in the back there. I can't hear you. Uh, I didn't quite fit the bridge between when you said the mystery of moving beyond definitions um, and then that relationship to gratitude. And, and right. As, as, as right, okay. I got it. 
So the question has to do with uh, moving beyond definitions and how that uh, arrives at gratitude and appreciation, right? Well, when we're not naming or calling something something, when we name something, we have a whole background of memory and uh, and all of the interest, either interest we have in it or interest we don't have in it or judgment associated with it or feeling tones of pleasant or unpleasant, all of that comes with the name, right? So when we invest in a name, you'll only know it to be what the mind says it is from its past experience with it. So if we quiet ourselves sufficiently so that the naming isn't the focus of our attention, so that we're not looking at the object through the name, but seeing it in a wider context, what you'll find is that there is a genuine sense of life loving life. How can it not? First of all, it recognizes itself. If you stand in front of a tree... And you just don't say, you know, oh, look at that tree, it's diseased. You just stand in front of it and be quiet sufficiently so that everything you're carrying about that tree doesn't form itself into a conclusion about that tree. You'll feel this wonderment of tree. And at the exact same moment, identical to that, you'll feel the wonderment of your body-mind. And the word that comes to mind for me is appreciation. That there's natural and organic appreciation. It's love, really. It's just love. It's just life loving itself. It's just life appreciating itself. I don't know how to say it. It's not exactly appreciation because it's not like the word that we usually use. It's just just this. It's tender. It's Instead of me telling you what it is, see it. Look at it. Find it for yourself. You'll recognize it. Believe me, you'll recognize it. Yes, dear. They, they aren't beyond material. The question is, why does, why does consciousness and formless awareness have to be beyond the material? Okay? It's not that they're beyond the material, because the material, as I mentioned in the metaphor of the movie screen, is really composed of formless awareness, isn't it? The light is forming the images, and we, but when you just look at the image, you don't see the light. And most of us just look at the relevance we have to the form in front of us, and we don't see any light. And then it's total gratification. We're totally, the brain is organized to want or push away or grasp a hold of or, or turn away from that form. And that tension associated with just form relating to form is suffering. So is there a way for me to acknowledge the form in front of me fully, right? And yet also see the connectedness of the light to the light. Is there a way that form can be held within each of us so that we don't move with it and from it just as a reaction to it, right? Because if we just react to it, you don't get anywhere. You just It's just your balls hitting each other and knocking away, you see? So it's no fun. Basically, we do this because it's not fun. 
We get involved in spiritual work because it seems like it's more fun. (laughs) And sure enough, it is. It's a delight, right? So it's not that we're negating anything. It's just we're, the eyes, we're just changing the perceptual way that we see something. We're not changing what we, we're not altering the truth of what we see. We're just changing the way we see it. Because the way we've, see, we've seen it is a conditioned way that we believe something that isn't true about it at all. You see, that's the reason. All, only that. So I, if I'm going to have a true relationship to you, I have to know you. Right? Not as I believe you to be, but as you actually are. And if I'm quiet, we will meet in where, what we actually are, rather than meeting in terms of the image I hold of you and you hold of me. There's no real meeting in that, you see? That's all. That's all we're doing. So we're not trying to eliminate or get over or surmount anything. We're going through each thing. We have put the barricade in front of us, And quiet will dismantle that barricade so that we can touch heart to heart. And we reteach a thing that's lovingness through that door. Don't let go of that question until you thoroughly understand it. Yes. Right. 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 Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. That's very good. That's an insight. Good, good for you, Barbara. The, the, she said that, uh, just for the video, she said she was going to a retreat and she, she, just, she was just being present. It wasn't even an acclaimed presence. It wasn't you know, some meditative state that she was proclaiming for herself. And she, she was just living it. And then all of a sudden she cut, arrives at the door of the, of the retreat center and suddenly the sangha... She sees Sangha, she sees herself, she sees a retreat, and the whole world comes back into view. Okay, that's actually, don't discount that. That's an insight, dear. That is an insight. What we usually say is, oh, I was off somewhere, and now let's get on with the Sangha and retreat. You know, because the Sangha and retreat, in me, is the truth, right? You're walking into a retreat, and you're reclaiming <laughs> what the retreat is supposed to break down. So you want to, <laughs> you want to, <laughs> You want to, you just, 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 wow, that was an insight. That's interesting. What is that? What was it telling me? What was it showing me? What was it showing me? And there's something, there seemed to be something else that was there. What was that something else that was, seemed to be there before everything got split apart and diverted through my thinking? Right? So let me, I, okay, just leave it as a question. Don't leave, don't, see, effort, effort, if you try to force it back, that's mental effort. Mental effort is going to screw the whole thing up. It's going to keep you within the paradigm of, of the mind, of the brain, and the manufacturing of that. And then you go, oh, I know there's it there and somewhere. What, what, and you go, let me just, see, you know, like all that. It goes the other way. Okay, let me just relax here. Let me just see. If it's there, then it's here now. There's no then to spirituality. It's now in spirituality. You never have to try to relive an experience because if it was there, it's now. So, okay, let me just see. What's here, what's here besides the configuration of multiplicity? What's there? Okay, let me just be quiet so that I don't keep stepping in the tracks of that. Mm. 
welcome, welcome. Where do you think welcome comes from, you see? It's like my heart, welcome. So listen to what you said because it was it's you were seeing something. The contact you make is always now, isn't it? But the mind tells you it was then. Oh, I remember you. You're such and such, and I met you once. And God, you know, why'd you say that to me back then? And, right now it's then. But if you're quiet enough, you can see that then is also happening now. Even the words I have about what occurred or who I knew you to be are arising from the conditions of the present. See, we lose context of then, thinking it is then. And we don't ever question then. That's confusion or ignorance. But when you bring then into now, you see it as, oh, that's just more now. Are people following this? See, when you see everything is now, it's all solved. When everything is seen as now, it's all, it's all solved. Okay. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you all. I knew there was another question I had to get to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.